Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE. I'm Armina Ishkanyan. I'm an associate professor at LSE and the academic lead of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program. Given that my research examines the relationship between activism, social transformation, and policy change, I'm particularly honored and delighted to welcome you to tonight's event at the LSE titled Building a World Fit for Future Generations. Tonight's event is co-hosted by three organizations. The LSE, which as an institution has the motto to know the causes of things, and more recently to shape the world, our aim. So I think it's particularly fitting that this event is being held here tonight. The second organization is the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity, which is based at the LSE's International Inequalities Institute and is a program that seeks to support change makers to address the major global challenge of entrenched and growing inequality in the world. And finally, last but not least, is the new now, which brings together rising global leaders working for dignity, justice, and equality. Before I introduce the event and our speakers, there are just a couple of housekeeping points I need to share. First, we're not expecting a fire drill, so if you hear an alarm, we'll need to evacuate the building, and our stewards will lead us to our fire safety point in front of the tower buildings. And second, please be aware that this event is being filmed and live-streamed, and we encourage everyone, if you use Twitter and other social media um, channels, to please use the hashtag um, or the Twitter handle at LSE Public Events and the hashtag which we'll share with you in a moment. Um, but I would ask that you please turn your mobiles to silent to avoid disrupting the event. As I said, tonight's event is called Building a World Fit for a Future Generation. What a timely discussion and vital topic. Around the world, we see stark reminders of increasing division within and between countries and a vacuum of moral leadership committed to addressing the root causes of democratic deficits. The conversations and discussions you will hear this evening will question the root causes of the current social, political, and economic challenges that we face, including, but not limited to, the stubborn systemic inequality in countries everywhere. Clearly, something fundamental has to change to preserve democracy, justice, and to promote a more equal world. <clears throat> but alongside the rising tensions and division in many societies, we are also witnessing a hopeful groundswell of vocal citizen action in many parts of the world. More often than not, led by a young generation of change makers. These rising leaders are pers persevering in the face of shrinking space for the tools that shape democracy, including dissent, nonviolent protest, and public debate. We tip our hats to them as they're acting now to shape the world. As you listen to the discussion this evening, I encourage you to think forward to the Q&A at the end. Each of you will have a program card and a space on that card to include a question and also the speaker to whom you want to address it. These will be collected before the end of the evening, so if you would like to have your question aired, please make sure you provide it to one of the staff, and I'll let you know when that is. Now, I recognize that we haven't left you much space on the card to write your question, but perhaps this is to encourage everyone to compose more concise questions. 
Now I'm very delighted to introduce our first speaker, Dame Manu Shafiq, the director of LSE, who understands leading from a young age, having been the youngest vice president of the World Bank in her 30s. An economist by training, Manoush has spent most of her career straddling the worlds of public policy and academia. After returning to the UK in 2004, she rose to become the permanent secretary, secretary of the Department for International Development, where she was responsible for the UK's development assistance efforts around the world. She joined the IMF in 2011 as Deputy Managing Director with responsibility for many of the crisis countries in the Eurozone and the Arab countries in transition. And from 2014 to 2017, she was Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. Please help me welcome Manoush, Dame Manoush Shafiq to the stage. Well, welcome. Welcome to all of you uh, to the London School of Economics and Political Science. It is a huge pleasure for me to open this event, which is co-hosted by the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity and the New Now. As, uh, as was said earlier, the Atlantic Fellows is an exciting program that we host here at the LSE that tries to support and build change makers around the world who will challenge inequality. Based at the International Inequalities Institute, the Atlantic Fellows Program is intended to foster fearless leadership. Activists, practitioners, policymakers, and researchers who are not afraid to tackle the causes of inequality. And together we're trying to build a model of knowledge and a new approach to leadership. You'll be hearing more about this over the course of the evening. Now, this is actually the second time that the Atlantic Fellows Program welcomes the elders to the LSE. I still remember the first time uh, when I, I wasn't very well briefed and I was told, oh, we have some very distinguished people in the green room of the old theater. Could you go and say hello to them? And I opened the door and there was Ro Harlem Brundtland, uh, Richard Branson, Ban Ki-moon, Dos Santos, all crowded into the LSE green room. <laughs> and it was a rather sweaty occasion, I recall, as well. But I hadn't seen so much brain power and talent and political leadership capability in such a small space anywhere. Anyway, tonight is another such occasion. <coughs> I think it's sort of fitting that the elders are combining forces with a young generation and kind of skipping the middle-aged types like us. <laughs> because I think, uh, I think some of the greatest creativity comes from older people who've got a lot of wisdom and are not afraid to speak their minds, and young people who are unencumbered by, uh, by conventional thinking. So it is a wonderful alliance that we're seeing here. And this new generation of leaders, many of whom are gathered here this evening, are working toward a more just and equal world. And they're offering a new model of leadership that's based on a more ethical, authentic, and respons responsible approach to thinking about our future. Some of you may know that the LSE recently launched a new strategy, which we call LSE 2030, and the strapline is Shape the World. And we really do think that events like this evening 
where we can provide a platform for visionary leaders from around the world to build on each other's ideas and to think about actions. And in that light, we're particularly delighted to welcome back Juan Manuel Santos, Dr. Groharlan Brundtland, and Danny Srikandara, who are all connected to the LSE in different ways, as honorary fellows, as honorary doctorates, and as former students at the school. <coughs> welcome home to all of you. We are really looking forward to what they say, to a thought-provoking and stimulating discussion that encompasses all of the challenges that we face, gender, climate, the digital economy, and a more equitable world. Finally, just before I turn to the next panel, let me just do a little bit of housekeeping for Twitter users. I think I'm supposed to say what the hashtag is, okay, which the hashtag for today's <laughs> event is hashtag LSE Rising Generation. Uh, which might appear somewhere. Uh, and uh, just a reminder that this will be recorded and hopefully made available to a wider audience. As usual, after this lecture, there'll be a chance for you to ask some questions. But for now, I'm going to turn it back to the chair, Dr. Armin Iskanian, who will introduce this evening's first panel. Over Thank you. you. Thank you, Minoush. So the first panel this evening brings together diverse voices tackling one of the most defining challenges in human history, the climate crisis. To facilitate this discussion, Dani Sriskandaraja, CEO of Oxfam GB, will be moderating the event, uh, or this panel. Dani has worked across many parts of civil society and public policy and has influenced policy and human development in many ways. He brings a wealth of understanding to the topic of climate justice, which is increasingly understood as both a human rights issue and an environmental challenge. Over to you, Danny. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everyone. I feel, to use Manusha's language, like a bit of a token middle-aged guy <laughs> between three amazing women, uh, Dr. Grahalan Brundtland, uh, an elder with such experience and wisdom in this, in this sector and on these, on these topics, and two amazing leaders of today, representing the new now and the Atlantic Fellows. Um, for those of you, the few of you in this room who happen not to know who this amazing hero of the environmental movement is, this is Dr. Groharlan Brundtland, um, who in my life was um, changed so much because my parents had a copy of the 1987 report on sustainable development that the, the, the Brundtland Commission uh, authored uh, and that effectively coined the phrase sustainable development and set, I hope, the world on this positive path around action on, on sustainable development. But what some of you won't know is, although Gro is an elder now, she became a political activist at the age of seven when she joined the Norwegian Labour Party and went on to become its, Norway's youngest prime minister, first female prime minister, and many other amazing things. Um, on on Gro's right is Fawiza Fahan, who is one of these amazing new now leaders who look them up because they are just incredible people doing amazing things. And in Fawaza's case, she's uh, doing work in her home province of Aceh in Sumatra, uh, thinking through some urgent issues about species protection, but also biodiversity and conservation. Um, and to my immediate left is uh, Madhumita um, Ardanari. I should know that because of another Tamil name. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, who is one of these brilliant Atlantic fellows hosted here at the LSE, whose day job is about advising 
businesses and other organisations about sustainable development and the transition. Um, and I work at Oxfam, which some of you will know has for 77 years been working on poverty and humanitarian relief. But increasingly, what you will see is organisations like us are waking up to the fact that the climate crisis is happening all around us. It is real. It is happening now. And for those of us who care about humanity, we have no choice but to play our role in achieving this just transition and addressing the climate crisis. And for us, we work in some of the hardest places on, on the planet where the poorest people have, who've done the least to cause this climate emergency are already facing the most devastating impacts of, 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 the, of climate change. I saw that firsthand when I went to Zimbabwe recently, when I went to DRC, even in Yemen. Already poor and fragile contexts are being, uh, the challenge of sustainable development is being made more difficult by extreme weather events, by the fragility of farming systems, by the lack of availability of adapted seeds, and I could go on. This is a reality that is already affecting those who had the least to do with this. And if we're worried about equity, as I know the Atlantic fellows are, then surely this is an issue. Our research at Oxfam suggests that ten, the, the richest 10% of the world's population are responsible for half of all carbon emissions. And if you happen to be in the poorest 10% of the world's population, then it'll take you 175 years to produce the same emissions in, that someone in the richest 1% produces in a year. It's those sort of deep injustices that the climate crisis is exposing that we have to address. And I hope we at Oxfam, along with everyone here and many other places, can do uh, can take that urgent action to address this climate crisis. And Dr. Brundtland, I wanted to start with you. You've been active in this area for four, four decades. Mm -hmm. um, what will it take for us to achieve that just transition, to address this climate crisis now? You know, first of all, I'm glad to hear, you know, that the climate crisis has become something that goes across a number of critical issues like poverty alleviation and others because that is the reality. Now, you, when you speak about climate justice, I just want to explain to you that when we were given the mandate to look at a number of cross-cutting dramatic trends in globally back in the early 80s by the Secretary General, we were asked to look at the environmental threats, the, the challenging and dangerous you know, trends that we had to start addressing and looking into. I remember I knew already then that there is no way to discuss and analyze the environmental threats without looking at development at the same time. Because I knew um, that the developing world will be saying, look, are, are we going to take care of the environment now while people are dying uh, because they are poor, have no food, and uh, they have no access to family planning, so families are you know, struggling and women are struggling. No. So I said we have to say environment and development. Now, after those three years, we came up with uh, the concept sustainable development, as you mentioned, as you mentioned. And it meant that, and it's interesting, 28 years later, the world was able to agree 
on the sustainable development goals. Now, many have said, you know, during those years, oh, you must be impatient, nothing is happening. The world is not doing what's necessary. Leaders are not uh, moving right. It's been much too slow. But you know, when you think about it, 28 years for 200 countries to be able to start agreeing on a list of 17 goals, including one of them, climate, because we knew from the beginning climate was already starting to become a threat. So climate was, the, the, the con concentration to do something about climate was in my report from 1987 as part of the broader sustainable development challenges. They are linked together and there is no way to get deal with this without having human rights, the rights of everyone, which means women's rights and rights for development and for a decent life across the planet. Otherwise, people are going to take down the trees, things are going to be negatively affected. So this is why we are in this together. There is no way to find solutions without multilateral attention and without the, the big and the rich countries moving and working together with all the poorer countries. We, from the start, said this is for the OECD, the rich countries, to deal with. We are responsible, as you said. You know, it's minute what a person in some of the poorer countries are contributing to the emissions. However, as the century turned and we started looking at emerging economies, uh, we had to realize there is no solution without also having the middle-sized, middle-income uh, countries and, and also every country involved and as we were able to have the world agree, sustainable development goals is something that affects, that is uh, relevant for rich countries as well as poor. That was the first time in the UN history that all countries were looked upon equally. That's why it was able to agree in Paris about the climate deal. Everything is going too slowly. There is not sufficient leadership. But we do see a number of things happening on clean energy, you mentioned agriculture, there, and of course, you know, I have been putting even my own money into uh, empowering women, you know, giving access to energy, solar energy. Because how can you raise a family, how can you educate your children if you can't read, and if you are going to be uh, suffocating because of coal-fired cooking of meals. Now, we have a broad agenda. It all has to be done. It can be done. The business community, those who are reasonably progressive and foresighted, they know. And they are sometimes, some of them are ahead of the leaders of, of countries because they are used to calculating the future in a longer-term perspective. The danger of democracies today is that the short-sightedness, short-termism, uh, which never impressed me, by the way, I mean, I was kind of entered into this long-term thinking from the beginning. 
But I see around me this is not always the case, I'm sorry. There are too much um, eagerness to think to the next election. And this will never solve the climate crisis or the nuclear threat even, which is another of the major challenges to our world today. I'm sorry, I'm afraid of the time now, so you have to control. I will, but I wanted to ask you one quick question. <laughs> I am I'm in control, it might not look like it, always. Um, but, but just quickly, I, I fear that you might say, look, I've been banging on this door for four decades and no one's you know, responding, but you sound hopeful. Are you hopeful I, and why? Yes, I, I, I mean, I have seen the awareness, the decision-making, the amount of grassroots and other uh, uh, activities across the world. It was impressive, even as we worked on the Commission, how many educational centers around the world, how many public hearings we had that opened the, the road to change in so many minds. We even opened Brazil and Indonesia from not democratic country, you know, by saying we must have public hearings. We are not coming unless you open the doors to your civil society to have public hearings. So it's also been a work on democracy, on, on learning from each other across the world. And so much has happened. Otherwise, this meeting would not have been. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had. Uh, the two important uh, agreements hmm. from 2015. It's just that let's get up the pace and uh, let's uh, support the business leaders who are asking political leaders to be a little more leaning forward. Okay. Yeah. Great, thank you. Fawiza, you've set up Hacker, an organization that's trying to protect the Loiza ecosystem. Um, completely different perspective, but are you as hopeful as Dr. Brundtland is about climate action? I mean, you know, I'm sitting in the presence of such great and visionary women who have done so much in her time, and it was through, due to her leadership that we have the space to move forward in the way that we do today. Um, the landscape where I work, the Loisa ecosystem, is the last place on earth where rhino, tiger, elephant, and orangutan still roam together in the world. And what that means is a pristine, intact ecosystem that not only serve ecosystem services for people living around the area, but also serve as a carbon sink. It's very important landscape, along with so many other landscapes um, around the world that store carbon and help us in the process of mitigating climate change. In my community, in the work that I do, the conversations around climate change is not centered around policy levers, it's not centered around 350 ppm or 1.5 degree. It revolves around water, it revolves around prevention of natural disaster. At the end of the day, you know, the sustainable development resonates so true because in my community, when you deforest forests, when you lose that forest, that standing forest, what you have next is flood and landslide. What you have next is poverty. And with every natural disaster, or not so natural, natural disaster that we experience, the economic loss is tremendous. Every investment that we have put in schools, in hospitals, in infrastructure, gone with the water. And that's 
not economically viable for countries like us. In 2015, there's huge forest fires that ravaged through Indonesia, through Sumatra and Kalimantan. When we think about forest fires, we think about the carbon emission that it emits. During this period, Indonesia emits more emission per day than the US. It's ridiculous in numbers, but at the same time, the reality on the ground, it's children breathing the toxic smoke. It's hospital full of people who got really sick having respiratory infection. So we can't negate the case of environmental protection from the case of human rights. Protecting biodiversity, protecting our environment is protecting the livelihood of the people. Climate change exacerbates everything that is wrong with our society. It makes everything worse. It increases inequality. It put women in a much more vulnerable position than they are now. That's why we need to fix this, but we need to fix this not from the perspective of colonial conservation. I'm sorry, I don't know how to be diplomatic. Mm. But <laughs> we really need to look at the lens of the people who is impacted and the people that have the role to also and push it forward. Just quickly on, I mean, you're a grassroots activist. Do you find that there are enough spaces for people like you to be heard in these discussions? Certainly, let alone being heard. You know, I'm privileged to be sitting on this stage. I'm privileged to be speaking in this language. But then at the same time, we think about philanthropic investment in climate change. There's only 1% of philanthropic investment goes into climate change. And out of that 1%, only 1% go to the grassroots community. At the end of the day, you know, we think about technological advancement, we think about how technology could solve all of our problems, how we might be putting a lot of money, that's important investment into clean energy and technological solution, but we have to remember it's about people. Protecting this planet is not so much about protecting the planet in itself, the planet could heal. It's about us protecting humanity. Great. Thank you, Madhu. Um, young people, we're hearing a lot about young people being in the lead. How are young climate leaders creating the sort of space for, for action? You know, when I speak to a group of people, usually whether it's business leaders or government leaders, and I ask them, why do you personally care about sustainability? Often it's the same answer we get. It's because we want to think about our children and giving them better futures. Um, and at the same time, what is really incredibly powerful is that these children that we are all working towards to bring better lives to are the ones saying, this is not just pockets of communities affected. All of us are going to have difficult lives and we're going to have precarious lives. Our futures are going to be more uncertain. And more importantly, it's going to be a world where hope is, is difficult, it's hard work and in order to be warranted, for hope to be warranted. So I think that it, the fact that we have young children, like for instance, we have kids like Mari Kopeni from in the Flint crisis in the US, who at eight years old wrote a letter to President Barack Obama, or we have um, little uh, people like um, Marilyn, um, her name is uh, Obaldo from the Philippines, who actually had to testify in court as a, in terms of human rights violations um, caused by the climate crisis. So she testified against oil and gas companies. And these are the kinds of people that we're hearing from, little kids and young people. 
And I think what is changing is the, is the, is the message that's so incredibly powerful and inspirational. Because these are kids talking about um, the moral imperative rather than waiting for the business case for action. And they are not talking about the, the jargon that we're getting from climate scientists. They are actually talking about the simple moral messages. And it, it come from, comes from a place of great com conviction and simplicity. And I think all of these make them incredibly powerful. And, but I think there is a third aspect to the youth that we're seeing today. And that is that they are coming together in very, very powerful ways, organizing through the Friday School Movement and on climate strikes, using the structures that, that are available to them in very, very powerful ways. So I think it's all of these things make them incredibly inspirational. I think the, the second part of the question around what does this um, mean in, in terms of policy shifts I think there are two big things. One is we have to listen, we actually have to deeply listen to these people who are coming up from various parts of the world and change the goals of this system. If the prerogative is going to be one that's entirely economic and saying, because we've developed our GDPs, therefore our, the livelihoods of our people will improve, that we're not entirely seeing that. And, and I think that needs to be a shift from that towards lis listening to our young people and going, so if we are looking at a world where humans are flourishing within a thriving planet, how do we reorganize our systems and policies around that? And I think the second part from that is that it's not just setting the goals of the system, but it's also looking into... What does this mean in terms of power dynamics and distributions? Um, I don't know if, you, if the people in the audience have uh, seen the Guardian's Polluter series, um, and that was uh, one of the key articles and exposés that came out was about how three asset managers are in fact holding about 300 billion worth of funds in, uh, in all, all across the world in thermal coal, oil and gas. And what's incredible is that where there is a push for clean energy and a revolution in the energy sector, at the same time, their investments have increased by 35% in the last three years. And the scales of these are just painful as, as someone who is living in this world to actually absorb and grasp. So I think for me, one of the things that I'm considering in terms of policy shift would be how, do, how can these policy, uh, these political and uh, power dynamics be disrupted so that we are all pushing towards one direction as humanity? So I think... Yeah. Great, thank you. Look, we're running out of time for this session. There was a phrase mentioned earlier about fearless leadership, and I hope you've seen an example, a manifestation here of what fearless leadership does mean. And I, I, I found it very inspirational, challenging, about, especially about the power structures and how we achieve this change as quickly as we need to, but it's now time for me to hand over to the next panel. Thank you. Thank you. Let's thank the panel. I want to thank Danny for expertly chairing, Dr. Brundtland for your contribution, Badu and Fazia. Um, I think we heard many things about how change happens and about hope and about disruption for change. If I could now please ask the second panel, uh, moderated by Tanya Charles, to 
to approach the stage. Um, I think Dr. Brooklyn said something that is a good segue into the second panel, which is about her support for women's empowerment and women's role. And I think this is something that highlights the importance of intersectionality, not looking at problems only from a single lens, but thinking about the different implications. So now it gives me very great pleasure to introduce our next panel moderator, Tanya Charles, who is one of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity, <laughs> Cohort 2. Tanya is originally from Zimbabwe, and she works across Southern Africa on freeing societies from the limitations of gender and sexuality stereotypes. Tanya is focused on the equality dimensions as well as strategies to tackle gender-based violence. Please, Tanya, over to you if you'd introduce your panel and we can have the next discussion. Okay, thank you so much for that really great introduction uh, and a warm welcome. I'm really excited as an African and a black feminist activist to be sitting with fellow African activists today <laughs> to really bring uh, into the room our perspectives and experiences around tackling uh, the many different inequalities that my co-panelists are tackling. Um, so it's an honor to begin by introducing Rukia Lumumba. She is a 2018 um, Atlantic Fellow for Racial Equity. She is a leading political activist from the United States, hails from Jackson, Mississippi, um, is a founder of the People's Advocacy Institute, which is about community-driven solutions to the many social ills that we're facing. You're also a co-leader of something called the Electoral Justice Project, which is of the movement for black lives where you're actually building black political capacity, mm -hmm. um, which is really critical um, um, in the current moment of uh, democracy in the, uh, the United States. Um, so it's really fabulous, welcome. Um, I'm also really excited to introduce uh, Jaha Dukure. Um, she hails from Gambia. She is a celebrated African feminist who has really truly changed um, activism around <coughs> female genital mutilation and child marriage on the continent, let alone in Gambia. She is also a new now leader. Um, she is also a UN Women Ambassador for Africa and really the founder for Safe Hands for Girls, which really challenges FTM and child, FGM and child marriage on the continent. She's also a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, one of two on the panel. <laughs> so it's really an honor to have you uh, sitting with us and joining this conversation. Um, and last but not least, um, and it's not because you're a man, Victor, um, <laughs> on this gender panel, um, it's really, really, really wonderful to have you here. Also a very renowned peace activist um, from Africa, the youngest African and the first Ugandan to be uh, nominated for Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 33 for your work combating child soldiers, especially male child soldiers, um, in the Ugandan war. Um, also a, a new now leader, one of the founding new now leaders, a Tutu Fellow, um, and founder of the African Youth Initiative, which we will hear more about, um, as well as a friend to the Dalai Lama, I hear, uh, whom you just recently met with, no doubt, to talk about peace in our current context. It's really great to have you here. Uh, welcome once again. Um, I guess my question will start with you, Rukia. I mean, you really, when I read about your work, what stood out for me is like you have been really at the front lines of challenging racial, economic, and political inequalities, you know, 
that's the thread that runs through everything that you do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get your perspective, you know, what do you see as the root causes of these inequalities? Mm -hmm. And what role do women play in this? You know, this is a panel about gender and women's leadership. <coughs> You're one of the leaders working on this. Um, and so what, what, what space, what role is there for women to challenge these um, inequalities, particularly at the institutional level, mm -hmm. you know? Thank you. Um, so, hi everybody. Uh, yeah. In Mississippi, we say hey. Yeah. So, hey everybody. Um, it is really an honor and a privilege to be here, and especially to share the stage with some amazing African leaders, some just leaders, period. I consider myself African, so I am extremely happy to be here. Um, you know, I can't pinpoint where on the African continent my people came, but we know we came from there, right? Um, and so excited about that. So thank you for the invitation and for having me. Um, so when we talk about inequality, um, the first thing that I like to, to do is to make sure that we have an understanding of what inequality really is at its core. And that is, inequality is a form of violence, right? And we have to understand how inequality is a form of violence because it literally perpetuates our realities as women, as men, as people leading governments, as people receiving government benefits, as people engaged in government, period, right? As recipients of what I consider government, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we have to understand the historical nature and the current perpetuation of violence, and that violence is known as the inequalities that exist. So that comes in the forms of economic violence, right? That absolutely comes in the form of violence as it relates to interpersonal violence physical violence, emotional violence. We see it in housing. We see it in the mass incarceration of people, especially in the United States. We see it across the world when we talk about gender violence and gender mutilation. So when we talk about violence, you know, and we talk about women's role, right, in terms of uh, addressing this violence and addressing these inequalities, what I say, and, and, and I, I come from a long line of women who have made decisions, right? Like many of us here in this room. A long line of women who have made decisions for the survival of their families, right? Um, so made powerful decisions about how we were going to just survive in a very dangerous world that is often dangerous to women, dangerous to people of color, dangerous to children, right? Um, and so it's, it's that understanding that as women who have made the decisions for all of us to literally exist here, in this room and in our lives, that have allowed us to survive, that helps me to understand that it is women in the perspective of women. This understanding that we have to be led by a radical feminist perspective, right? And I would even dare to say, venture to say, a black radical feminist perspective, right? Because that is the, the, the mind frame, that is the set that is going to help guide us to a better society and a better world. When we lift up black women, we lift up generations and nations, right? And I think that is really hard sometimes for people to hear. But there has never been a time in history where lifting up a black woman hasn't lifted up everyone else in the room as well, right? And so I really want us to just challenge ourselves to engage in these difficult conversations and to engage in the understanding of envisioning and understanding something outside of the box that we know that may tug at the heart of our fears around what does it mean to actually put a black woman first, right? 
to put that thought frame first. Tug at that fear of what does it mean? That fear of, of male subjugation, right? Subjugation, right? And throw out that, that fear. Because when we look at history, we see that this understanding of, of males becoming inferior has long, 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 is a long, long, long myth, right? Long, long, long held myth. And I'm going to be quiet because I only have four minutes. But it, 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 it is a myth. And, it's, and, and, and we haven't seen that happen yet. And it's not something that will happen because in the same way that when you lift up black women, if you lift up women across the world, you see that conditions across the board improve for everyone. And so I think that women fit at the center of movement and at the center of government in the same way that communities and the basis of my work is around lifting up communities to actually lead government. And so this framework of, of government actually doing for the people has to be shifted. We have to engage in deeper democracy, right? Deepening our democracy so that we shift the paradigm of, of being governed mm -hmm. to communities actually governing. Mm -hmm. And so I'll stop right there. I mean, what you said is absolutely powerful. And you can see how black vote, women voters in America are literally keeping democracy alive mm -hmm. and as it should be. And I, I also think this idea that there should be some form of community-led governance that we can drive our own realities um, is really powerful and important to echo because I think we feel hopeless in these times. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have people like Jaha, who I'll now move to, who's actually done that. Your work, Jaha, challenging this traditional, centuries-old, entrenched practice of female, female genital mutilation, um, you stood up and said no more as someone who survived that, as someone who's founded an entire network of survivors to say no more, to the point where in 2015, Gambia actually outlawed the FGM. Um, can you talk us through that journey, in particularly how as women leaders, we always have to challenge these cultural norms and practices in order to live free lives, essentially, um, and I know, you know, cultural norms manifest in different ways across the world, but in this particular context, it's FGM. So can you talk more about how you navigated that and, and just advise us women who are battling under the weight of cultural norms that, you know, prevent us from living freely? Yeah. Um, thank you, by the way, for everything that you said. And as a, a black woman and as an African woman, I can totally relate to that. But when it comes to the issue of female genital mutilation and child marriage, you have to understand where I come from. I come from a very conservative family. My dad is an imam, and there's no one like me in my family. And ever since I was young, I was always that person that was different from everyone else in my family. But as a young woman, and especially when I was pregnant with my daughter, I realized that if I don't do something about this issue, my daughter's going to face the same things I face. I went through FGM as a baby. I was forced to get married at 15 the first time and then again at 17. But then my daughter is just one girl. There are currently 200 million women who have been subjected to FGM. Every year, 68 million girls are forced to get married against their will. To most people in this room, that's just numbers. But to people like me, that's my reality. Mm -hmm. And when you force a girl to get married, you've literally given someone the right to rape her over and over mm -hmm. again. 
And I grew up in a community where people spoke for me. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a community where people talked at me. Mm-hmm. And most oftenly, I was that footnote at a research paper that you read about and you write about and you present to your lecturers. But I was never the person that was at the forefront actually having these conversations about my life and my community. And to me, I don't do this work. I think one of the things that I had to make very, very clear early on, especially to communities that I work in, is I do this for Africa. I do this for my people. And I don't have a choice. We inherited a very, very, excuse my language, but a very fucked up world. And I want to make sure the world that I pass on to my children is better than the one I inherited. And by doing that, I need to address a lot of the issues that are against us. And female genital mutilation is not just something that's horrific. Mm -hmm. It is something that goes against human rights. Mm -hmm. It goes against our dignity. It goes against our right to bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was important that the people that are actually leading this fight looked like me, Mm -hmm. spoke like me. Mm -hmm. Because we know what works in our communities. Mm -hmm. We are used to people importing solutions in our community Mm -hmm. and treating us as victims. Mm -hmm. And I was not going to have that. Like, women like me are making a difference. FGM is ending because people like me stood up and said, enough is enough. We will not live with this. Mm-hmm. In the Gambia, for instance, we've noticed that there's a 30% decrease in perception when it comes to FGM over the last five years. And that's because people like me took that fight on. Mm-hmm. We, we were no longer people that were sitting on the sideline where the development sector comes into our community and they design programs for us and we just have to follow that. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, communities will say no to that. Mm -hmm. But when they know that it's coming from a place of respect, when they know that it's coming from a place of dignity, we understand that the people that did this to us, our parents or our grandparents, they didn't do this to hurt us. And when we address it, we need to address it from a place of love. Mm -hmm. And we need to address it from a place of respect. And I think every time we go into a community, before we even mention the words female genital mutilation, we listen to the community Mm -hmm. to get an understanding of why do they practice this. Mm -hmm. Because the reason why FGM happens in the Gambia is not the same reason why it happens in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And it's totally different from why it happens in Nigeria or Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. And as people that care about these issues, we need to understand that. Mm -hmm. And we need to listen to the communities. And we need to allow the communities to lead that change. Mm -hmm. So to me... My work on these issues, that's what it's about. And to show that we're more than capable of addressing our own issues. Mm. And we're not just, you know, people that you should feel sorry for. Mm. As a young African, change is happening because we're leading it. Mm. And that's it. Mm. Thank you. I mean, those are really powerful and inspiring words, you know. Um, having been at LSE and really tackled the issue of inequalities from a you know, previously activist side to an academic side, it's really interesting to see how you know, the community response, the communities are actually the ones at the core face mm-hmm. of some of these social issues. And there's, that's, a, that's, a lot, that's where a lot of the innovation is happening. That's where the real fight is happening and the real wins are happening. So I applaud you really for taking courage and really changing things for mm-hmm. Gambian women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and the threat of community is really important. Um, Victor, I think you can also speak to that. You, know. you resisted being drawn into a life of being a child soldier and actually began to tell and speak the language of peace in Uganda 
um, when no one was. I mean, I remember watching something where you told and narrated that a community, a fellow community uh, member said, why are you talking about peace? Where have you ever seen peace? Where have you ever lived peace? So you actually had to dream a different dream against the odds and then model a different dream. So you took on the issue of gender-based violence. You took on the brutality the war was having on women and girls in your community. And I see you as a male gender justice champion. You had to model the new behavior and that comes out in the way you speak. You speak about love. You speak about you know, a, a time of security and peace. Do you think now, you know, we live in a world where our, your fellow, I don't know if I say your fellow or fellow political and community uh, leaders are, are actually not leading with love and are not leave, leading with an awareness for women's realities. In fact, they're resisting them, mm. you know, as um, Rukia raised. There's a pushback and women's rights happening around the world. Do you think given our current political environment from Africa to Europe to America to Latin America, that we need a new manhood, that we need a new model of male leadership that is more about love and peace and some of these values that you seem to be embracing and speaking about. Oh yeah, uh, hello everybody. Hello. You can feel the pressure I'm going <laughs> Well, I... I am very delighted, first of all, to be here and then to hear what my sisters have talked about, but also to meet the audience like you. And the subject we're talking about, it gives a lot of refreshment. You know, it's so refreshing and uplifting to know that around the world, uh, the common struggle is coming to terms. We are all talking the same language of who do we care for, who do we stand for. And of course we know in our every decision we make every day, somebody's life is attached to. So if we make the right decision, then a better life is guaranteed. But also make stupid decisions, then life continues to suffer. I think uh, globally, I would say the gender rhetoric just as the youth rhetoric, the inclusion, the empowerment is strong, mm. but in reality it has not changed. Mm. The rhetoric has changed, commitments mm. there, and all this kind of uh, you know, normative frameworks on in terms of policies being designed on women inclusion in youth inclusion, mm. but the reality remains the same. The power remains the same. It's still male-dominated society mm-hmm. with who has all the power, who controls everything. Mm-hmm. But what I must say, Growing up in conflict, uh, I think the struggle of a woman in war zone mm. is something that compares to no other struggle. Mm. In spite of being oppressed, being targeted, being subjected, I see that to date women in conflict remains most loyal to humanity. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a child, my mom would cook food because the food wasn't enough. Mm and she would pretend that she's eaten, mm. yet she will have saved that food for tomorrow. Mm. My mouth would skip food for a day or two because she would want to make sure that our last bone would get food tomorrow in case we don't get anything to eat. Mm. So these are the kind of sacrifices that I, I grew up witnessing. Mm. So if a song that says a woman must be a, you know, God must be a woman, I think that's very, very, very true that, you know, God must be a woman. But what I, I also feel like, when... Hope and bond is dead. Mm. Not so much can happen. Mm. A lot of things go wrong. Mm. So in a society where people are so 
exposed to mistrust and inequality mm. and injustice and feeling of sense of hopelessness. Not so many things happen in, in good terms. Mm. We're talking about how can we sit one-on-one -on -one and talk about reality? How can we sit one-on-one -on -one and discuss what's good for our society, for the future of children? I think the number one source of wisdom comes from a woman. Mm. I grew up peaceful because my mother guided me. Mm. I took up, I made a point, a commitment to my mom that mm. I'll never learn how to shoot a gun. Mm. I'll never kill anybody. And to date, I don't know how to shoot a gun, and I will never learn how to shoot a gun. It was from my mom, not from LSE, not from any university. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was yeah. from my mom. Yeah. And then, of course, we have generational narrative. Young people do look at the world differently. Mm -hmm. Our approach to reality has changed. We have capacity, we have momentum, we have connections, and all these credentials that we have, how can we help that become a tool to transform the pain, the trauma, the suffering into mm -hmm. an opportunity for change. Mm -hmm. That takes into account the gender inclusion. Mm -hmm. I think we have the power to let not, not let the darkness and hatred and inequality in society stand the light of humanity. Mm -hmm. Humanity united is humanity united. We can mm -hmm. move forward together. Mm -hmm. And lastly, to my fellow men, are you there? <laughs> if you are there, yes, okay, let's go. I wanted to say, we cannot be so brainwashed to think that women are the objects, that women are the subject, and that women are the project. It is not true. Women are human. Women are like us. Without them, we wouldn't be there. So stand up for a woman, protect them, respect them, do all you can to make sure they live a life in dignity. Thank you. Thank you to all the speakers. Um, I could listen to you for much, much longer. Um, be bored. <laughs> but I've been given the task of keeping time. So um, thanks, Tanya, Rukia, Jaha, Victor, for your wonderful contributions. Um, thank you, of course. So now for something completely different. We've heard from many leaders from around the world, and now I'm delighted to introduce, from South London, Potent Whisper, a rapper, author, and spoken word artist who uses rhyme to tackle the need to dismantle structural inequality in our society. And I've been asked to remind everyone to Keep your cards until the third panel, and the stewards who are walking around, or who will be walking around, will collect them during the event. So if I could invite Potent Whisper. Thanks. Good evening. Hello. I'm getting pointed to the microphone. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. No, not back. Then I'll take my instructions. Thank you. Is that a bit better? Yeah? yeah? Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm going to share some spoken word with you this evening. Uh, before I do, by show of hands, can I just get an idea of who lives in London? If you're based in London, just pop your hand up for me. A lot of you. Cool, you're doing well. You know what I mean? If you live in London, there's two words most recently that you will have likely heard more and more frequently. Redevelopment, or otherwise known increasingly as regeneration, which isn't what it seems to be. 
Our councils really love to just regenerate a place, to elevate a space, to regenerate estates. They're regenerating London in abundance as we speak. But have you ever wondered what these words actually mean? I mean, the term redevelopment implies a type of progress. And the council make it sound like a beneficial process, which has to make you wonder why there's been so many protests against regeneration on estates. It makes no sense. Until you look at the evidence from previous developments and find that none of these benefits actually benefit the residents. You see, when they redevelop homes, they also redevelop rent. When they redevelop rent and redevelop debt, we get evicted and shifted out of ends. When they redevelop bricks, we have to redevelop friends. Maybe you thought you knew what redevelop meant. But if you believe the redevelop, please develop sense. You better fight for us or you'll be redeveloped next and then we'll all be redeveloped to a redeveloped dead. You could be a sister, a neighbour, a parent, a mother, a carer, a saviour, a friend or a brother. They couldn't care if you bled in the gutter. You could be dead because to them, you're a number. To them, you're just the amount of money they can sell your home for. Like... <clears throat> Good afternoon, £800,000. How are you, £800,000? I hope this letter finds you well. It's worth £800,000. I'm writing about your property. I'm sorry, but you've got to leave. You'll be on the streets, but to me, £800,000. It's the sound of progress. It's a scary process, but the council always knows best. Please, £800,000. Think of all the other houses we could build when yours is down, and we could get them forking out around £800,000. <laughs> Uh, but you can come back for £800,000. But please don't be sad if you lack £800,000 because whenever you're feeling down and out or looking for money down the couch, remember that to me, you're worth £800,000. Yours sincerely, Councillor Matthew Bennett. But Matthew Bennett's a big man. Plus there's big plans in the pipeline. Our tube will get a nightline. The food is getting quite fine. Everybody wants to live in Brixton or London. It's the high life. So smashing our homes to dust has come just at the right time. Now, admittedly, I've got a biased background. I've stood and seen my best friends have their houses smashed down. I'm already angry and anger clouds the reality. So let me detach myself and just look at the facts now. Cressingham Gardens Estate, that's in southwest London. 300 houses in the council went across. Let's get a round of applause for Cressingham Gardens Estate, please. That's in southwest London. 300 houses in the council went across them. Each house has around a three person count, so that's 900 people who stand to lose the house. The council explained that the estate needs work, and over one third of properties need a refurb because they left them to decline, which happens all the time. You'd be quite surprised if you do some research. Now, a full refurb will cost seven mil. It's nothing. But the council have announced that they can't afford that, despite having received 100 million pounds in funding and despite having collected rent for 40 years before that. So instead of spending seven million on refurbishments, which they've already announced they have available now, they want to smash the houses down, build around the same amount, and that's going to cost £110 million. But according to the council, this all makes sense because they intend to build 27 extra homes at council rents. <laughs> yeah. They want to spend £110 million 
on 27 extra houses. While there's a housing crisis and a waiting list has thousands, that's not efficient or sufficient. Why do we allow it when it only serves to benefit developers and councillors? But you know what? Even if residents could afford to move back, what makes the council think they'd even want these new flats? Not everything that's new is necessarily improved. The council just assumed that we would even want to do that. They forget that in these homes, people raise their families. These walls have shared their happiness and faced their every tragedy. They forget that a home is a community, a neighbourhood, and no amount of new could make me feel the way my neighbours could. They forget that, the difference between a home and house, that a house can't be made a home for any one amount. They forget about the elderly who spent the whole lives here. They've got a right to stay here. They've got a right to die here. It's sad to be said, but it has to make you wonder whether they forget or just care more about a number. Maybe you thought you knew what redevelop meant. But if you believe the we develop, please develop sense. If you live in social housing, you'll be redeveloped next, and then we'll all be redeveloped, so we're redeveloped dead. We just want a place to live. That's what our estates are for. It's time to fight to try and survive. We're living in a state of war. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so now I would like to introduce the final panel discussion, which is led by Uzo Iwala, a new now leader and CEO of the Africa Center in New York City, where he is working to change the African narrative in many ways. Uzo is a medical doctor by training, an accomplished author, speaker, and filmmaker. Please welcome Uzo Owala to the stage and the fellow panelists, Aziz Alhamza, Oya Mahoub, and Anjali Sarkar. Over to you. Um, hi everyone. This is a, it's a tough, uh, tough one to follow, but we have a scintillating discussion about digital inclusion and inequality for you now. Um, so I'm on stage with some really amazing people who work in this space. As you all know, we all talk about um, the rise of tech and tech's ability to transform the world. But we also know that, you know, we're sitting here looking at things or headlines like, you know, the United States and China competing for supremacy in quantum computing um, and things like that. But at the same time, we live in a world where many people, in fact, most people don't have access to the technology that you guys all hold in your hands right now. In fact, I see a bunch of you filming with them, like right in front of me right here. Um, and the folks that we have on stage are, are folks who are working in that space in various ways to really figure out how to make this world more inclusive and how technology can do that um, in its various forms. So uh, without further ado, I will introduce them to my left. That's my left side, yes. Um, so my left, we have Anjali Sarkar, who's uh, a, she's with one of the Atlantic Fellows um, for Social and Economic Equity, um, and she's also a serial entrepreneur from Bangladesh. Um, she's worked with a number of organizations, including BRAC and Ashoka, 
um, and at the same time is a global shaper at the World Economic Forum and a New Voices Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Welcome. Um, to her left, uh, we have someone I know well who actually gave me the scarf that I'm wearing. So, <laughs> um, Sorry, let me just make sure that I've got everything down. Uh, Roya uh, Mabu, who is uh, a new now leader uh, and a very good friend. Um, she's also the first female CEO in Afghanistan at, who became the CEO at the age of 23 um, of a tech company that she built herself um, that was creating tech solutions for a newly emerging government and uh, Afghanis, uh, society in Afghanistan. Um, and at the same time, after creating this company, she realized that there was really an issue, a larger issue about digital inclusion within the society as a whole. And so she launched the Digital Citizen Fund, um, which provided digital classrooms for uh, young women in Afghanistan to teach digital and financial literacy um, around the country. Um, and at the same time, uh, she is the coach and mentor for the famed um, Afghanistan's Girls Robotics Club, which has been featured in many publications, including the New York Times. Um, welcome, Roya. And then to her left is Aziz, uh, Abdulaziz Alhamza, who is also one of the new now leaders. Um, he's a Syrian citizen journalist who founded, um, and co-founder, sorry, of Raqqa is being silently slaughtered, um, which is a citizen journalist organization that um, really in, in many ways documented a lot of the, the atrocities that were happening in Syria. Um, and he now lives uh, between, I guess, New York and, and Washington, D.C., and spends a lot of his time working on citizen journalism issues as well as um, issues around um, inclusion and how uh, digital technologies can work or help to mitigate violence around the world. So welcome to everyone on the panel. So um, I'm going to start, uh, uh, sorry, let me just get my notes. <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna start with you, Anjali, um, and let's talk a little bit about this idea of uh, digital inclusion in finance, which is an area that I know that you've worked in in Bangladesh. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work around bringing women into the financial sphere using digital technologies and how that, how, what impact you've seen uh, with what you're doing? Sure. Um, so today when I'm sitting here, I'm here because one million women dare to do something different. The thing, the gadget that you all take for granted, it comes to you as a very simple technology that you know how to use and how to get the next best model, the best version. For a lot of women around the world, that's the most scary thing in the world because they have never had the power to hold it. For them, a mobile phone or even you know what to do with a mobile phone, everything related to technology was men's business. Forget about money. Personally, I think the relationship between women and money it always has been complicated. And if you are a South Asian woman, and particularly I can speak for Bangladesh, if you are a woman living in a rural area somewhere in Bangladesh, Money is always men's business, and when you make that even more complicated, when you are trying to tell them that, oh, you can make financial transaction with, with your mobile phone, that becomes complicated square. But one million women, they dare to do it, and I'm extremely privileged to be a part of that initiative that we were able to make that happen. So financial inclusion, now as, as we see it around the world, in my country, microfinance took more or less four decades to get around 20, 24 million people to give them access to financial services. And when we introduced mobile money, the whole number 
similar number of women, they got under coverage in just four to five years. So I see that's the power of technology. A lot of things, we all know that banks, the, especially the mainstream ones, they can't go to the women because women are not so-called profitable. You know, they can't adopt the technology as quickly as men. But when you give them a chance and when you treat them differently, when you try to understand their needs and perspective differently, when gender doesn't come as an afterthought, actually magic happens. So in my experience, even rural women who had no idea how to operate a phone or what, what do the numbers mean, what is one, what is two, they learn by memorizing the visuals, like this is one, this is two, and this is how I can operate a phone. So to me, that's incredibly inspiring, and this is what gives me a lot of hope that Maybe things don't make sense as of now, but if we keep trying, if we can create services and products, and especially financial services, keeping in mind that what else it will take. In my opinion, technology should work for women. Women shouldn't adapt to technology, or we shouldn't think that, oh, women have to learn and women have to do this and that to learn technology. I think tech should work for poor, tech should work for women. So I, I see that that's an incredible area where we have a lot to work on and things should go better. So Anjali, your words in, in a large sense tie what you just said um, to the, so one of the panels that came before, this idea um, of inequality as a form of violence and really digital um, inequality being a gender issue, not just a tech issue. Now, Roya, one of the things that you've been working on is exactly that, bringing more women, young women, in fact, in Afghanistan into the tech space, both yourself as an example and then the mentoring and the work that you've done with the robotics team and also building institutions for young women to learn. So how, do you, um, how have you approached this in your work, um, and how do you deal with this idea of, of digital inequality really being a gender issue as well? I believe that uh, in a... First of all, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for having me here. I believe that in inspiration and I believe that in inspiration and ingenuity come in most unlucky places. Those who are writing off by the system or discredited by by the source of the possibility, they can be a, a find find a way to bring the end to poverty or bring the peace to the world. The mind of a child is a source of unlimited potential if we're giving, only giving it tools and guidance that they can become the next scientists and mathematicians or artists. I could have been an unknown woman if I didn't have a chance at the age of 16 to know this magic box that connects you to the world. I lived in a society that the darkness, that the only words come from was the truth that was come from your father, mullahs, or your teacher. We had only one reality, uh, for the women and then for the lucky women to get in marriage at a very young age that soon later after on they could find out that they are living in a very difficult and dark lives after the uh, soon marriage. But when I introduced this magic box, I decided to change my life and make the technology to be center of my career. I went to the computer science and I graduated from there and I started my company at the age of 23 with my youngest sister. We hire a lot of the women as young entrepreneurs or as like programmers and the writers, but what I found that this was very difficult to be in a tech CEOs in, a, in a places that very male dominated. I had a lot of uh, challenges to have access to the finance and uh, getting the contracts from very male dominated industries. I got a lot of trades by that. 
But how I could overcome of those challenges, it was a technology. Technology helped me to overcome of that. I found a way that to find my investor through the technology and through to the web. And I realized that the digitalization can connect the woman beyond the border of the country that they always known. And it's more than importantly, digitalization also give the woman, especially social media, a powerful tools. And I'm giving the another example that before the giving the example, I would have to say that at that time I realized that there are millions of the girls who are out there just like me, but curious, but they're giving a narrow vision to explore the world. That's why we started to show some fun and nonprofit organization, giving the young women access to uh, information, to technology, giving the devices for them, and as well provide the skills for them. And uh, I want to give an example of the robotic team. It's three years ago um, when they, uh, their visa is denied, we use the social media uh, to not be silent and giving their stories out, and that's bringing out attention to 53 U.S. congressmen, millions of the people who uh, fight for them. And then at the last minute, President Trump get himself involved and in giving them like, granted the visa, and they could come to the United States. But we didn't want to stop from that moment. When they come back, they're becoming as a role model for the society, and we, they're becoming as a symbol of hope and unity for that society. And uh, this was a victory, a vision of a hope for a country that for centuries ignored women's ability in science and many other industries. And that's why, because of them, right now, we are going to build the first school of the science, technology, engineering, art, and maths, with a focus on the last technologies like artificial intelligence and blockchain. And I believe that uh, this should be happening in every society, especially in developing countries, because there, are, there is a huge gap between the richest countries and the poorest countries and within the countries. And uh, today we are, again, coming to U.S. or coming to London, at the different conferences, people talk about within the next 10 years, there will be no job or there will be very less job, and most of the job will take over by uh, AI or robotics, but then there are millions who are out, almost half of the population, they are living in darkness. They don't have an access to technology, and many of them, as you mentioned, they don't know how to even using the cell phones. So most of them are the women, and we have to make sure that uh, we're giving the same access to the tools and information to every kid around the world, boys and girls. They needed to be the next inventor and designer and creator that they can change their lives and their communities. And it's possible if we're giving the similar um, access to opportunities and the governments and policymakers are responsible to make sure this is happening. Roy, you said something really interesting there, um, which I think, Aziz, I'm going to pivot to you to ask about. You said that... Um, you're talking about sort of digital uh, technologies allowing you to connect beyond borders um, and really tell your stories, I guess. And Aziz, this is something that you've done um, and really uses a tool to save lives, to project, um, to, to tell people about what's happening in Syria. Um, can you talk about your experiences uh, in Syria with Raqqa's being silently slaughtered and how you've used digital technology to really get the word out about what's happening to people in your community? Yeah, so... I come from a country called Syria where there is a censorship. So the government controls every single thing. So and we Syria we say like the world has ears, which means like everyone might be a spy and the majority of the population are spies. So you might end up having like a brother or a father is a spy, so you need to be careful what you say. So we had like this fear like among us as a community. And when the uprising, the revolution started in Syria, we all thought it's not gonna, it's not gonna last only for a couple of minutes or days. 
And then using the power of media, especially social media, we could make a change. So the Arabic Spring started, and I remember myself like studying biochemistry, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. So because my mom forced me to study that, so and I went out to the streets to protest, and then I went back home like to check the news, and there was nothing about Syria, nothing about the protests, although there were like 80% of the country they were like all protesting. And I was so pissed, and like the national TV was talking about what would happen to the earth if the sun would disappear. So I was like, what's going on? So the next day, I went to the protest, and I decided to film it. I filmed it with my old Nokia phone, and I went back home. I uploaded it online after I was like Googling something about VPN. And then like my... And my video, like the video that I recorded about the protest, went everywhere. Like BBC, CNN, like all TV channels. And I was sitting next to my mom watching the news. And like my mom, wow, serious in the news. And I was like, yes. And I was like, I hope she wouldn't recognize my voice because she would kill me. So at that moment, like literally changed my life. So I went to my friends. We all got together. And we decided that we need to be more organized. Later on, I'm from a city called Raqqa, so it was like the first city to be occupied by ISIS. And because of my activities, I got in trouble because I'm always in trouble. So the Syrian government arrested me three times because of my media activities. And then we ended up with ISIS, and we decided to do the same thing that we've done against the government. And dealing with ISIS wasn't an easy thing. ISIS prevented all media organizations to go there and cover what's going on, as same as the Syrian government. So we decided to start this movement, Rock has been sought as silently, to smuggle news and information out of ISIS territories. And before we started our organization, if you would Google anything about Raqqa or ISIS, or how to join ISIS, you would get all the instructions in three seconds. So easy. And then for us, like, you know, Googling anything about my city is all ISIS. So that was the, the theme of my city. And I was pissed. And that was one of the main reasons why my friends and colleagues, we decided to start this organization. And we started reporting about the news and what's going on. And we could, like, turn the attention of the media. Like, RBSS, or like the hashtag of our organization, was trending, was like number one internationally. All news were talking about it, everyone was talking about it, and then we decided to use the internet to counter ISIS propaganda. So the number of ISIS foreign fighters, or like the foreign fighters who went and joined ISIS, they were like from 84 countries, thousands of them, and the number was increasing. After we started our organization, the number started like to drop down and go less and less every single month. And that pissed ISIS, so until we got to a point that they were hunting us. So they assassinated and killed like my colleagues in Syria and even out of Syria, so in Turkey. And there were like attempts to assassinate me and some of my colleagues, even in Europe and other countries. So it was like a risky thing, but we knew that we could like really through that fear within ISIS itself. Through the, through the media, through the internet. And we noticed that we were not really aware about encryption. Here where I got to know more about it, and I turned to be a trainer myself, and I 
turn to be a person who can train people to be trainers themselves. So recently we started an academy in Syria where we teach and train people, journalists, activists, how to communicate in a, an encrypted way and how to keep themselves safe, so not to get them to the same situation where my colleagues had to be killed or assassinated because of encryption. Thank you. Thank you. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask each of you in the work that you've done, what has been the most inspiring thing that you've seen um, through the work that you've done that you think gives us hope for the future? Anjali. Um, I think when I saw that women were being able to make transactions for the first time using their phones, there's only one word I can use to explain that. Magic happens. You know, forever, their grandmother, mother, whoever was there before that, they have always sought help from male members in the family to do something for them. This is the for, for the first time. They don't, till they, they don't even have pockets in their dresses, nowhere to keep their money, but they have a phone or they can use someone else's phone to make a transaction by themselves without anyone's support. Incredible. That's, that's Magic. Yes. Magic. Roya? I think that the, the magic for what I see is that when the girls go online for the first time and they can, uh, they can see there is a absolutely different world exists from the world that they always known, uh, I think that would be magic, especially when you see the changes is happening in your face. So, and, and then the other thing is that the uh, robotic team, that when they started to building a soft and the men respected them. When every go, every places that they go, um, men look at them differently, especially in Afghan, Afghan society. So that's also I think that another magic thing is happening. And Aziz, what's the magic that you've seen? There are like two things. Like one thing, my grandmom has Facebook, and she comments my and my photos. Like I miss you. So. <laughs> I never thought that my mom would have on Facebook, but my mom is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. She like her tweet and share everything I post. So, and the other thing, like the, through the academy and the training that we've done in Syria, and we're still doing, that uh, we could change the mentality of the people. Right now, 52% of our trainees are women. And for them, they all came and said, like, you know what? We were forced to get married or we were forced not to complete our education. And we provided this platform where they can learn about different things and use technology. And for us, like, we figure out that women would be more comfortable with women. So we focus to have women trainers and leaders to deal with them and take care of them. And then we decided that those trainees can be trainers and they can go and give back the community, so to change the culture, the mentality, that was like a magical thing. I've never ever thought about it as someone who was studying biochemistry and being a troublemaker and seeing money from my dad. <laughs> so, Aziz, Roy, and Anjali, thank you very much and thank you to all of you. Bad. These panels have to be so short. There's so much that I'd like to ask and hear more. But we're near the end of this evening, and before I introduce our final keynote speaker, I'd like to remind everyone that um, the stewards are collecting questions for the speakers, so if you want to pass them to the aisles, please do that. It is now my privilege to introduce an esteemed LSE alumni, President Juan Manuel Santos, the former president of Colombia 
and a member of the Elders. Following ministerial appointments in finance, trade, and defense, Juan Manuel Santos assumed the presidency of his country in 2010, and he was re-elected in 2014. In his inaugural address, he named seeking peace through dialogue as his top priority. And in September 2012, he publicly announced that his government had entered formal negotiations with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as FARC. This was followed by complex negotiations to finally complete the process in 2016, putting an end to over five decades of armed conflict. As a result of his resolve and dedication to achieve peace and reconciliation in Colombia, President Santos was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016. Please join me in welcoming to LSE President Santos. Good evening to all of you. Um, I know it's late, so um, I don't have a, only a two-hour speech. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to uh, salute all the staff, the teachers, the students, especially the Nunao leaders and the Atlantic uh, fellows that are here present. Um, and it's a huge pleasure to be back at the London School of Economics in this event in which we celebrate the courage of rising generations to fight against uh, inequality and injustice in the world. This institution holds a special place in my heart and also a special place in my political life. It was here that I was inspired by its rich tradition of progressive thought from Sydney and Bretchus Webb and Harold Lasky to modern-day visionaries like Amartya Sen and uh, Anthony Giddens. Just three months ago, I had the great privilege of receiving an honorary degree from this great university, and I thank the university again for this. And I am speaking tonight not only as a proud LSE alumnus, but also as an equal, equally proud member of the elders, the group of global leaders founded by Nelson Mandela in the year 2007, who worked for peace, justice, and human rights. I must confess to you that at the beginning, when I was recruited, I didn't uh, very much like uh, the title of the elders. Um, but I was, I was told that uh, in South Africa, the elders doesn't necessarily mean the olders. So then I said, okay. And I hear that uh, the uh, Nunao leaders were called the youngers. <laughs> and uh, they rebelled, and they said, "No, no, no. We we, we want to be called the new, uh, the new now." Uh, but that's a privilege of the younger generations that can be done. <laughs> um, the elders have just, and we have just concluded our board meeting. We meet here in London, and we come together uh, every 
six months to discuss the global challenges in the world, in a world that today is a bit upside down, and we seek to identify where our modest intervention could help those brave women and men on the front lines who are fighting for a better future. The, the words of Mandela when he launched our organization are today more relevant than ever. The elders, he said, support courage where there is fear, foster agreement where there is conflict, and inspire hope where there is despair. These are good principles to guide us all as we reflect on how best to tackle the inequality and the injustice that destroys the opportunities of so many people around the world. They say that courage is the mother of all virtues. And in the same way that collective intelligence produces better results because of the synergy that it generates, collective courage is much stronger, it's much more powerful, is much more effective. And we need collective courage to confront the political, the business, and the economic interests that seek to maintain our current unequal order. We need collective courage to promote agreement, to promote inclusion and consensus, to achieve policies that work for the common good rather than narrow self-interest. We need collective courage to inspire hope, hope across all sectors of society, but especially the young people, listening to their voices, acknowledging their experiences and ensuring that their ideas, their determination and innovation will be anchored into the policy-making process. As a former president and head of state, I know, I know very well, the tremendous difficulties faced by all leaders, especially in today's world, the intense pressure and scrutiny under which they have to make decisions, and the harsh and sometimes deceitful media prism through which these decisions are judged. One example of how collective courage helps was a long and very difficult process of negotiating the peace process in Colombia to end more than 50 years of war. I always drew support and drew encouragement from the collective courage of the Colombian people, but most especially from the victims who gave me great lessons of generosity and resilience. And this same sense of collective courage is needed to tackle today two 
existential threats facing the world, climate change and nuclear weapons. When I was a student here at the LSE, the Cold War was still very much hot. And the prospect of nuclear annihilation gave people of my generation sleepless nights. I remember very well. Climate change instead was not an issue. It was a non-issue. But today, four decades later, nuclear war is still a dangerous threat. But it's still only a possibility Whereas climate change, with its equally devastating effects, is a certainty, a certainty. With one caveat, in our ecosystems that are already changing, it is the poorest and the most vulnerable who are paying the price, as usual. It is no exaggeration to say that without urgent, radical action, future generations will have no future. And unfortunately, these are not the only concerns of our times. How to tackle the problems of migration, of exacerbated nationalism, of the discourses of hatred and exclusion, of the poverty and inequality that affects so many millions on the planet? What can we say to the new leaders of the rising generations, to you in this auditorium, who are looking for ways to guide and be helpful in an environment of polarization, of populism, of radicalism? The answer the answer, my dear friends, can be summarized in just one word. Moderation. Moderation is not inaction. Quite the opposite. Moderation implies seeking reforms and taking the necessary measures to solve the problems of the community and of the world, but doing so without stridency, without considering ourselves to be better than others, without excluding anyone, without dogmatism. A leader who works with moderation does so from a spirit of inclusiveness and humility, listening to voices from the grassroots as well as experts, welcoming, welcoming help from outside when it can make a difference and creating, creating space for the next generation to also play its role. Moderation in speech, moderation in deeds, moderation in the use of natural resources, moderation in the way of treating others. Moderation is not being carried away by extremes that are, are always, always harmful. 
It is to work out our differences always with respect to those who think differently. As a member of the elders, let me today leave you with a simple but powerful message. As the elder of a tribe would do when walking when talking to the young leaders who will succeed them. The extremes end up becoming the same. The extreme right and the extreme left are nothing more than diverse representations of authoritarianism and populism. They are both manifestations of a selfish spirit. So be aware of the power and strength of collective courage and use it, use it by all means, but do so with moderation. In that way, you will have more possibilities, many more possibilities to change the world, to make the difference for the better, of course. Thank you very much. Before you leave, um, I have a question for you. Of course. <laughs> so, the question is, um, what can we learn about Latin, about Latin America in terms of tackling climate change and promoting economic development. I guess it's what can we learn from Latin America in terms of tackling climate change and promoting economic development? Well, unfortunately today, Latin America is not giving a good example in terms of promoting climate change. Uh, the most important country in terms of climate change is uh, Brazil. And uh, the Brazilian leadership is not very enthusiastic about climate change. And that is a great pity because uh, Brazil should be uh, the leader in trying to confront this threat. Brazil has the Amazon uh, jungle along with Colombia, Peru and other countries. Uh, we have to uh, stop deforestation in every way possible. There are many who are now uh, proposing to elevate deforestation to a crime against humanity. I personally am I'm getting closer to that position because if you destroy the lungs of the world, you're destroying humanity. And in terms of inequality, Unfortunately, Latin America is the most unequal continent in the whole world. And you are seeing today in Chile, in Ecuador, in Bolivia, in Haiti, all around Latin America, something which is worrisome, but at the same time, I think it's a positive signal. What you're seeing in Chile, for example, is not uh, the... Uh, protest of the 
lower classes, the protest of the middle class that has become part of the middle class because Latin America has fortunately lowered poverty at a very high rate. And when you liberate people from the poverty trap, their expectations grow geometrically. And what we're seeing is a middle class that is demanding much more in an environment of freedom and of democracy, which uh, many of you don't remember what Latin America was some decades ago. That would not be possible. So you're seeing this collective courage working towards improvement of that issue, inequality in Latin America. Thank you very much. Um, we have many questions for you, but I think we are cognizant that... <laughs> Go ahead. You can ask a, a few more. One more? <laughs> are you sure? Um, okay. This one is from the audience. It says, what is happening with the implementation of the Colombian peace agreement? It's a good, a very good uh, See, question. I did ask if you wanted me to ask that question. <laughs> uh, making peace, and I've had to make both, making peace is much more difficult than making war. The Colombian peace process is probably the most ambitious and comprehensive peace process ever negotiated to resolve an internal conflict. Very ambitious. We finished the first phase. There's always two phases, peacemaking and peace building. The peacemaking phase, we finished, and we finished it relatively fast, faster than most agreements. And we started the phase of peace building, the construction of peace. I will tell you an anecdote with Pope Francis. I used to visit him during the negotiations. They were very difficult negotiations. And I used to, to go and tell him, uh, uh, Pope Francis, uh, why don't you give me a hand? Give me a help, some help, because this is very difficult. And he looked at me. I went about three or four times and always said, I pray a lot for you. <laughs> and I said, well, if the Pope has to pray a lot, for me, it means I'm in big trouble. Uh, but, but he said, no, you have patience. Persevere. I will go to Colombia, but I will go when you and the Colombians most need me. And uh, he went after we signed the peace process. He went after the day that the guerrillas gave up their arms to the United Nations. And he himself put the title of his visit. I'm going to Colombia to push the Colombians to take the first step in that long and difficult path of reconciliation. Reconciliation. That is peace building. Well, we are in that process. We have had some difficulties in some Commanders went to, to again to the dissidents, but, but they did not carry uh, the, the 
majority of the FARC, more than 90% of the FARC members are complying with the agreement. We have had a government that has not been very pro-agreement. As a matter of fact, it was elected uh, uh, making a campaign against the agreement, but it, ha it has had to face reality. They tried to change the agreement, and the Congress said no. The Constitutional Court said no, and the international community said no. And uh, just last Sunday, just last Sunday, the elections in Colombia, the people said no. no. Don't change the agreement. On the contrary, implement it and strengthen it and implement it faster. So we're going in the right direction. We still have a long way to go. We made agreements to, for example, de develop the, uh, the areas that were more uh, affected by the conflict with territorial development plans for 15 years. It takes time. But overall, the agreement is going in the right direction with the same difficulties that any agreement, especially one so complex as this one, will always encounter. But I am optimistic. I think the agreement is shielded. Uh, legally and politically. And again, what we saw last Sunday is a demonstration of that. Thank you, President Santos. I know we, we're running over time. Um, I have two, three more questions. Does the audience want to stay in here? Yes? yes? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Well, actually, these are for some of the other panel members, if that's... So I'm going to invite Jaha, Madhu, and Fazia, And you can all sit down here, if you'd like. So the way I'm going to uh, organize it, we have got two environmental issue questions. And one question, which is um, around... Please sit down. Okay, so Jaha, this question is for you. Yes. And it's, how can outsiders ethically work in development? Is it possible to enable change from outside, so on areas such as FGM? Um, so I think when I say that we don't want solutions imported into our communities, I don't mean that we don't want the support of outsiders. Like recently, I organized an event, um, the first Africa-led um, summit on FGM and child marriage. And Aziz Al-Hamza, who was there, was the reason why we had a fatwa on child marriage. For the first time in history, we were able to convince Al-Azhar University that has the highest authority when it comes to Islamic jurisprudence to issue an Islamic degree against child marriage. And that happened because Aziz was the only one that spoke Arabic. And he was the only, and he was a man. So I think you can support people like me that are doing this work. But what we don't want to see is people dictating to us what to do, how to do it, and how that funding is going to use, be used. When you look at the development sector, right, a lot of times people have offices here in New York, in New York or in London, and a lot of that money never gets to the mm -hmm. ground. Exactly. And we keep talking about poverty, we keep talking about gender equality, we keep talking about climate change, but we want to fund institutions 
that we are familiar with, people mm-hmm. that look like us, when there are people that are sacrificing their lives every single day doing this work, and they don't ever get any of that. For us, we have to justify everything that we get simply because of where we come from. And that's not something that's just me. When I look at myself, I look at Aziz, I look at... Um, um, Weezer. For Weezer. <laughs> I mean, for instance, Aziz is still trying to register his organization. While there are others that are getting millions of dollars to do 1% of what he does every single day. So I think for me, that's the message that we're trying to get across to people. We need your support, but don't do your support from a place where you are looking at us as victims and those Africans that need to be saved. We don't need anyone to save us. Like, we can do bad all by ourselves. Thank you. (laughs) That was very well put. Farwiza, you mentioned that, you know, it's 1% of 1%, right? So I think you've got a lot of shared kind of ideas. Question to you is climate crisis or climate emergency, is this language conducive to promote policy that puts people first? So how helpful is the language of climate crisis or climate emergency? Okay, I have to pull that. Well, I mean, it's partly helpful, partly not helpful. It's really depending on how we have been communicating the issue with climate change. It's so often the case of conservation, the case of solving problems of uh, climate crisis is seen as the work of others because we have our own priority. We have to put food at the table. We have to put our children to school. Therefore, as if uh, the problem of climate crisis is the work of this privilege. But in reality, changing the narratives around climate change, putting the power back at the grassroots, people who are experiencing it firsthand. Because local community is not only at the front line of conservation, but they are also oftentimes blamed as perpetrators. They are also victimized. They have the power. We have to acknowledge the power. Yes. Thank you. And last, but definitely not least, then we've saved the most kind of at least from a London perspective. Contentious question last. Madhu, what do you think about Extinction Rebellion? <laughs> I, um, so I'm Singaporean, and I come from a country where we don't, we don't organize. So we've had conversations around, wouldn't it be a privilege for us to get Extinction Rebellion in Singapore and for us to have that open space to have that discussion? Whereas here in London, I joined a couple of the protests, and the image that I had is of the, a story of this young mother who was trying to push her way through and saying, I hate Extinction Rebellion because I can't get my children to school. And, um, and, and when I was walking uh, just a couple of days ago, there were two people who were having a conversation. And they were saying, yeah, once you climb the trains and buildings, you've just lost London. And, um, and I think that there is this, what is really incredibly powerful about the Extinction Rebellion is that people, environmental groups that were not coming together actually came together and climate scientists and all of that was happening. But it is still not reaching the grassroots and the people who are on the front line of, of a lot of these issues are not in, are not included in a lot of the conversations, um, and I don't have an, an insider view of Extinction Rebellion, so I don't feel like I would be the best authority to speak about it. But from my perspective, I think it's conversations that are happening that need to be happening a lot more, 
but it needs to include a lot more people um, for it to be really, really taken off and for it to be mainstream. That was an excellent answer to a difficult question. So I would like to thank everyone, all of the speakers, all of the participants, the audience, um, the organizers. I think we've had so much rich um, materials to think about and I think we've recognized the challenges that we all face across the world but also not to lose hope and I think moderation is a message that is very important to take with us. And, and I want to stress what you just said um, about uh, uh, enlarging the participation. This is what is happening all around the world. Yeah. It's happening in, in Lebanon, in Sudan, in Chile, in Haiti. It's the dialogue is too concentrated and you're excluding too many people. And the way to be included is to use your collective courage, mm -hmm. and, but also with moderation, mm -hmm. but use it. That's the way you would be included. <laughs>